Well, good morning. We are diving now into the book of Exodus. As many of you know, we spent well over a year working our way through the book of Genesis, and now we come to the sequel. And sometimes sequels are more popular and more prominent than the original. Let me give you some examples. Here's one. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? It was a huge deal. There was a movie all about it. But it's actually the second book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. The Magician's Nephew is first. And yet, many people will know and recognize this, but will have no idea that this is actually the sequel rather than the original. Or consider this. The next one. Here we go. The Dark Knight, right? Smash hit. This was a huge deal. Uh, probably, I think this came out 10 years ago, which already kind of blew my mind when I did that research this week. Of course, this is remembered for Heath Ledger's legendary portrayal of the Joker. But the movie became a smash hit. Largely, he died not long after this movie was released. And, and, it, and to me, I was shocked to learn this is actually the second movie in a trilogy of Batman movies. Sometimes the sequel is more popular than the original. And I put out on my Facebook page this past week asking folks for the most popular Old Testament stories, whether they're from church or have never been in church. And I got a variety of answers. I got quite a few answers that weren't even Bible stories. That was kind of interesting. But... And I got quite a few folks that answered New Testament stories. And I'm like, well, I asked for Old Testament stories, but that's okay. Answers were all over the board. But one answer kept coming up over and over and over again. It was some form of Moses and the Exodus. People would say things like, well, the Ten Commandments, right? They would say things like the Passover. And just consider the number of secular film adaptations alone for Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Maybe you remember the classic Ten Commandments movie, right? Or maybe you were here on Wednesday and you watched um, The Prince of Egypt with us, that classic cartoon adaptation. And this doesn't even begin to express Moses' popularity in Christian media and children's shows. Genesis was great, and there's many memorable things in the book of Genesis, but the events of Exodus have a lasting prominence and popularity that's hard to minimize. And it's not just true in media, friends. It's true in your Bible. Consider this. Consider this. At the book of Exodus forward, we're going to have about 40 years of the people in the wilderness. Genesis took us all the way from creation to Joseph, from Adam's exile from the garden due to sin, Noah's flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph's exile in and out of Egypt. Abraham's people were given this great promise that they were going to be a nation and have multiplied an offspring and given a promised land. But Moses plays such a huge role in this story that the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are starring Moses. And, it's, and the story is going to slow down and focus on this nation and their journey out of Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness, all led by Moses. Let me, let me say it straight this way. Fifty chapters in Genesis get you shared by Adam, Noah, Abraham, and the sons. Over 130 chapters devoted just to Moses and his life and ministry. Does that send us a message that something important's happening, right? 
And when the New Testament writers want to summarize the Old Testament, that's why they just stick the name Moses on it. He sort of is the picture of all that the Old Testament is about. And when they want to describe God's saving work, they draw on the language of the Exodus. And in these pages, we see the promises made in Genesis begin to take shape and be Fulfilled All the promises made to Adam after the fall that through Eve was going to come a son who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. The promises made to Abraham and his family of offspring and land and that through the promised nation would come a serpent-crushing Savior who would, who would bring the world back to Eden, but better. And Exodus is a continuation and a central part of God keeping this promise. Here's your central point for this morning. Here it is. God multiplies his people and keeps his promises through unlikely circumstances. Exodus 1 is a reminder to us that God multiplies his people and keeps his promises through unlikely circumstances. Particularly, you could sort of sum it up with the title of today's message, Unlikely Multiplication. And we see this in three parts. The first part, like any good sequel, Moses begins with a recap of Genesis. Like any good sequel, he's got to flash you back to part one, doesn't he? Look at verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. For the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Think of this almost like a previously on, and then they sort of flash you forward through all of this. And of course, no recap of the book of Genesis would be complete without a list of names, right? We learned in our journey how often these names appeared, and we get a look at the situation. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and his 12 sons have all ended up in Egypt. What began with one man, Abraham, son of Terah, had now multiplied to be a small but defined nation. Joseph was sold into slavery and exalted to be governor over Egypt. And God had rescued this family and the nation of Egypt from the famine through it all. Joseph was in Egypt, and as we read at Genesis 50 at the start of the service, he died there in Egypt. And these 70 or so descendants remained there. And the nation continued to multiply and fill the land. In fact, he sort of is condensing down in these first few verses all that we saw at sort of the end of the book of Genesis. And we get a sort of new beginning. The people are multiplying and filling the earth. And remember, that's language from the book of Genesis, isn't it? The Garden of Eden, the way God intended, that we get this sort of new beginning. They're fruitful, they're multiplying, they're filling the earth. And God was multiplying his people in the most unlikely circumstances. He was multiplying them in Egypt. That's the last place God's people expected to be, and certainly the last place they expected to flourish. It seemed like the end of a story, not the beginning. 
Yet God was going to use the small nation of immigrants in this massive superpower of the day to accomplish his purposes. And here we find an application. Friends, you need to hear this. God always uses the least likely. (laughs) You need to hear this. God always uses the weak and the seemingly insignificant to fulfill his will. If you ever ask yourselves, can I ever do anything for God? The answer is, if you're weak, he can use you. If you feel weak and you feel, uh, and, and you feel like you could never do it, that's the exact person God will use. And what the Apostle Paul said of Christians thousands of years later is certainly true of the Hebrew nation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See this, God was going to use a nation of 70 to thwart the Egyptian nation of millions. He was going to use the offspring of one desert wanderer to bless the world. And what started with one guy with a barren wife would end up with as many offspring as the stars of the sky. But it started small. It started weak. And it continues through worldly weakness and foolishness so that none of us may boast before God. God gets all the credits. God could have kept Joseph's people in power, but then human power would have got the credit. He could have made them rich or wise, but then riches and wisdom would have gotten the credit. But he chose the weak the small, the insignificant, and the oppressed to declare his greatness and power. And God wants to do the same through you. You ever thought you weren't smart enough to serve God, strong enough to serve God, powerful enough, influential enough, whatever it is, that's exactly what God wants to use to display his power through you. And out of this recap comes a problem. Conflict begins to arise. There is your second point, a rivalry between Egypt and Israel. There's a rivalry that begins to come. You've got this growing nation of Israel among the people of Egypt. This is a big deal. And haunting words enter the picture. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Remember, the people of God were safe because of their relationship to Joseph. But now Joseph was dead and their security was in trouble. And we get the impression, even from these words, this is not good news for God's people. Consider first that we don't even get this new king, this new pharaoh, this this new pharaoh, we don't even get his name. There are a number of options you can go read, and I can give you some reading material if you want about which pharaohs were involved in the Exodus. And and it's interesting because pharaohs historically have spent a lot of time and energy trying to build a legacy 
for themselves to be remembered. Think about the pyramids, right? Think about anytime you've seen a sarcophagus, it's very decorated. These people want you to remember who they are, and yet the most powerful man in this day isn't even given a name, but the people of Israel are. (laughs) Friends, this is a reminder to us, first and foremost, that all of us are going to die and be forgotten. Happy Sunday, right? But this is so important for you to remember. How many of us have ever even given thought to our great, great, great grandparents? How many of us can name more than maybe seven U.S. presidents and what they did? And don't even think about the modern ones. Those don't count, right? Those don't count. We need to understand that even the most powerful and influential people will not live on in history books. And that means many of us certainly aren't going to live on in history books. And that should cause you to consider what matters most. Pharaoh is forgotten. And even for a time, Joseph is forgotten. And all the good he did reversed. Consider this. Consider how Pharaoh is painted here for us. He's going to make the Egyptians work the ground as slaves. Genesis 3 told us that the curse made work difficult. The ground was cursed, and Pharaoh was going to make them experience that curse. Consider that Genesis 3 said one of the curses of sin in the world is difficulty in childbirth and dysfunction in our families. And Pharaoh was going to perpetuate this curse through murdering these baby boys. And we actually have archaeological evidence that pharaohs wore serpent crowns on their head. They had a snake right here. Moses knew about this, and he wanted us to see that Pharaoh was on the side of the Genesis 3 serpent. A wicked man has taken power. Everything has changed for the people of God. They were once in security, but now they're in oppression. And this should lead us to ask what our security is in. Particularly, it should lead us to ask this question. Do we place our security in political power? (laughs) Do we place our security in political power? The people of God had a godly, competent man in the Egyptian White House when when, when Joseph was there. But he's gone, forgotten. Other political victories and maneuverings, while not bad really didn't give any lasting difference. And this is a reminder to us, as election season's coming, your social media is going to be abuzz with all kinds of thoughts and opinions. Hear this, we need to be thankful we live in a place that isn't Egypt, but we also need to see that there's temptations that remain for us. We are tempted to trust in government as our Savior. We are tempted to, see, to think that the White House can fix the problems and redeem the world. Consider the Egyptians saw that Pharaoh was God. They would worship him and say that, well, the Pharaoh will save us. And friends, I think we are often tempted to do the same regardless of what our party affiliation may be. Because the kingdoms of this world will never be fully kingdoms of life and blessing until the king returns and transforms all things. And we got to be reminded, we might have victories and we should be thankful for them. But look at how quick Joseph's out. New Pharaoh's in. The people of God are in trouble. The, re, the quick redirecting of political power can come at a moment. 
And actually Solomon, the later King Solomon, reflects on this. And I love this. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is Solomon. He's really having a rough day in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says this. Look at this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and, under my, and, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You see, Solomon's thought, he's like, I'm going to do all this stuff with wisdom and skill, and then I'm going to hand it off to the next generation, and they're going to screw it up. Or the generation after that, or after that, someone's going to mess it up. And the people of God went from the top of the food chain to rock bottom very quickly as Joseph is replaced with this wicked king. Power is a terrible security blanket because it can be lost in a moment. The new king arose and he didn't know Joseph. He didn't care. He was going to do what he wanted. And look at verse 9, what happens next. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built the Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Think of the irony here. Joseph entered Egypt as a slave, was exalted to be powerful, but now Joseph's people are returned to being slaves. And not simply slaves, but slaves under an oppressive government. The same government that was once a source of comfort to them was now a source of oppression, ruthlessness, and bitterness. And Pharaoh did this out of rivalry to the Hebrews. He said, hey, I I am concerned they're going to rise up against us. And it certainly seems dark for the Hebrew nation here, doesn't it? But not all hope is lost. I want you to look at verse 12. Look at this again. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Talk about unlikely multiplication. The worse things got, the more God was keeping his promise to them. The Hebrews just couldn't be kept down. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more God's promise was being fulfilled. The man out in the hot sun working in mortar and brick maybe didn't see it at the time, but we get the benefit to look back and see God was at work in it all. God was at work in their oppression. Here's the point. God used the evils of an unjust kingdom for the growth of his kingdom. God was multiplying his people. Even though Pharaoh was wicked and did all of these things, he was using it for his purposes. God's people continued to be blessed and multiplied even as they were subjected to the fruit of the curse. The sun beat down and made work difficult. 
Yet God was multiplying them, and he was going to keep his promise to bring them a seed of the woman who would save them. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the light of promise continued to shine forth, but even as the light grew, the darkness grew as well. We move from the recap to the rivalry to third, the rescue of Hebrew boys to a rescue of the Hebrew boys. I want you to look with me at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Egyptian midwives, one who was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. But God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong, but because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but let every daughter live. Look at Pharaoh's plan here. Kill off the boys, kill off the nation. And this, I think, it really had a twofold purpose. Remember, God's people were expecting a male child to come and save them. Genesis 3.15, there was going to be a male child who would come to save them. And, and I believe the Hebrew people likely encouraged one another with this promise. And Pharaoh wanted to squash any hope. He wanted to pose a direct threat, not simply to the Hebrew people, but to God's promise. And he hoped to squash that through murdering their male infants. But also just consider on a national level, your nation's not going to continue very long if you don't have any men. Not only are you not going to have any future children, but in this day you would have had no defenders, no fathers, no anything. The most powerful government on the earth in this day was on the mission to murder infant babies. And they wanted to do it for their own comfort and security. But two brave women attempted to subvert the plan of Pharaoh. Think about this. Pharaoh thought he needed to worry about Hebrew boys. Friends, he needed to watch out for two Egyptian women. They were the ones he needed to fear the most. Shifra and Pua, women who model godly disobedience. Just remember, these lowly midwives, we get their names. We don't even get Pharaoh's name. He's a nobody. But these Lowly, regular, godly women, they're somebody. (laughs) They feared God more than Pharaoh. And they modeled godly disobedience. That There is a time where we must obey God rather than man. There is a time where government may ask you to do something, but you recognize there is a higher king and a higher governor to which you must give an account. And so they disobey Pharaoh, and they get called into the office. And I love this exchange, verse 17. Pharaoh calls him in, and he says this, But the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. They let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And I love their response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, 
Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. In other words, they're really good at having babies, she says. Now, I don't actually know if the Hebrew women were quicker at giving birth. This is their way of saying, they give birth before we get there. Now, I imagine the midwives on their way, they hear there's a baby being born, and they might just stop in for lunch a little early. And man, service was slow. (laughs) at the place they were stopping in. And then, well, they had to stop to get gas for the camel on the way there, right? Or whatever it is. They, had to, they were just delay after late. Traffic was really bad on the interstate. They just couldn't get there. By the time they're there, boom, baby's born, right? That's how I imagine this going. But regardless, the Hebrew midwives had planned to disobey Pharaoh and to do what is right, And this is a reminder to us that when a government decree comes against us that is unjust and not right and causes us to disobey God, God gets our highest authority. Despite what the culture may tell you, government is not supreme. (laughs) There is a king above them to which we must give an account, and he gets our highest and greatest obedience. Look what happens, verse 20. God dealt well with the Egyptian midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Talk about unlikely multiplication. God used these Hebrew midwives here in Egypt to rescue his people in accord with his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He was blessing those who blessed his people, and his people continued to multiply. And while these women were standing in the gap, faithfully disobeying an unjust authority, there is a dark reality here. Because we know Shifra and Pua saved some of the Hebrew boys, but we also get the feeling that there were many they didn't rescue. That Pharaoh was drowning in a brutal, evil, vicious policy. Drowning these Hebrew boys. And this is where the scene ends. Imagine you're watching the episode and the episode ends and I would be screaming at the TV right now. No, I want to know what happens next. An evil ruler is oppressing and murdering God's people and they're in trouble, aren't they? Where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Where is he? And the message of Exodus 1 is the message we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus and it's that God was there. God is present. God was there all along. He was multiplying his people and keeping his promise through unlikely circumstances, particularly two ways. God was at work behind the scenes to bring his promise to completion. God was at work behind the scenes to bring his promise to completion. They may not have been able to see it, But what they feared would destroy the legacy and promise of Abraham was actually accomplishing it. What tried to slay God's kingdom was actually used to serve God's kingdom. The more his people were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And God was doing this through unlikely circumstances. And I want to remind us that this isn't simply an Old Testament reality. Friends, this is true of us. As New Testament Christians, as the church, God's people have always suffered. And the second thing we need to see is God's multiplication plan has always included suffering. 
God's multiplication plan has always included suffering. It may not be for us exactly like it was for Egypt or for Israel in the book of Exodus. But let me show you this, what the book of Acts has to say about the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Look at this. And Saul approved of his execution. This is a reference to Saul. We know who's later on going to be known as the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion. And he's giving approval to the stoning of a deacon named Stephen. And we see this. Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the Apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. And hear me, you are a Christian today because these people went about preaching the word. They took the gospel for the first time outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And notice, it wasn't the apostles who were scattered. It was Joe Schmo, regular Christian, who in the face of persecution and opposition were scattered to do God's work. Those who never saw all that God was going to do But they trusted him in their suffering and stepped forward in faith anyway. And God brought unlikely multiplication through it all. And the rest of the book of Acts shows us that from this moment in Acts chapter 8, when the church is scattered, the church began to multiply. And even one of the ones standing there giving his approval to the Christian Christian persecution is going to become a Christian apostle, receive persecution, and die in prison for his faith. Do we have faith that through it all, we might not see the finished product in this life, but that God is using our life to inch his kingdom forward. You may not see all that God is going to do, but that God is wanting to use you to ever more further his kingdom. Do we see that in our work, you may have a job that's sluggish like a Hebrew slave, but God is going to use it in faithful service to him. Do we see that God is using suffering, even if it comes from unjust and oppressive governments, to further his kingdom? Let me say something bold here. We all long for the church to multiply, right? We long for the church to grow, at least I hope we do. We long for this to happen in the world, and maybe God's church is anemic because God's church is comfortable, Maybe we've gotten just a little too comfortable. And then something really small goes wrong in our life, and we're just ready to throw in the towel on this whole God thing. Took me too long to go get my Starbucks. God must not love me. And you look at the faith of these folks under this oppressive government in Egypt. We will never see the multiplication we long for until we're ready to get a little uncomfortable. And here's what that doesn't mean. I don't think that means we should actively pursue getting under an Egyptian pharaoh. That's a bad idea, right? Sometimes go, that's a terrible idea to go, well, let's just go to Egypt and elect a really bad pharaoh and let him just really make our lives hard. That's not what we need to do. But it might mean stepping out of your comfort zone to serve, 
It might mean walking to that neighbor or that family member or that friend and having a conversation about Jesus with them. It might be mean willing to endure some change and doing something a little different than how we've done it before in order to see others reached with the gospel. And it might require us to form necessary spiritual habits for our own growth and the growth of our family, and it will require sacrifice. And it will require us to get a little uncomfortable and to put in the work. It's not until God's people get uncomfortable that we begin to multiply exponentially. Would the words of Exodus chapter 1, verse 12 be true of us? That the more they were oppressed, the more they multiply. Let me just say that our whole faith is built upon the message of Exodus chapter 1. That God is multiplying His people and keeping His promises through unlikely circumstances. Consider this, Jesus was born of a virgin. How unexpected. How unlikely that some virgin in the Middle East in the first century would birth the Savior of the world. Consider that for 30 plus years, Jesus was some unknown carpenter. We don't know anything about most of his life. He just quietly built stuff. Consider the cross. Unlikely. We, we wear crosses around our neck as jewelry. We have one up right here. And you've got to understand, there was a time they would have looked at that and seen a, de- a death sentence. And consider the empty tomb. God is all about using unlikely circumstances to bring about his promises. Jesus is a confirmation of that. He lived a sinless life. He died upon the cross and he rose again from the dead so that any and all can come and experience everlasting life. And you can experience that today. And today, you can become a part of the nation God is building out of every nation. When you take a step of faith and you trust in Jesus, you become of something that transcends every nation and tribe and tongue. You become a part of a a holy nation God is building through trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And for those of us who've done that and who followed the Lord in baptism, we come to the table (laughs) We come to the Lord's Supper as we do the first Sunday of every month and we remember God's multiplication and his faithfulness and unlikely circumstances. We remember that Jesus gave his body and he broke it for our salvation and he spilled his blood so that you and I could have everlasting life. And so as we prepare to take the supper together, let me offer you just some general instructions to help us remember. First, this is something for those of us who are Christians to take. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you would just let the plate pass and use this as a time to reflect, as a time to think on all that God is doing and all that you've heard today. But if you are a a baptized follower of Jesus and you're faithfully following him, we ask you to take the cup and the bread, to sit with it, and to reflect on how God uses the most unlikely circumstances, body and blood, to ransom us and to redeem us for his glory. I'm going to pray. You stay seated, and we'll pass the elements together. But let's use this time to reflect, and even to call out to God to use us and multiply us for our good and his glory. 
Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful that you are sovereign over all. That there is nothing in this world that takes you by surprise and that you will even use the most unjust and wicked situations for our good and your glory. God, I ask that in these moments as we're reflecting and preparing to take the Lord's Supper, that we would give you our attention and that we would give our attention toward the greatest example of you bringing good out of evil in the cross and in the empty tomb. And that if there's somebody here today who does not know you and has not trusted in you as Savior and Lord, that they would do that today. They would right where they are, pray to you, and have you come and, and save them. Or they would talk to one of us here with their questions, and we would help to work them through these things. And Lord, as we reflect on your goodness and kindness toward us, Lord, give us glad and thankful hearts, but also give us a heaviness of these things. Lord, I pray that you would multiply our church, (laughs) that you would grow our church, even if that means having us get a little uncomfortable, even if that means doing hard things and having to go through hard things. We ask that you would take us weak, broken people and use us to proclaim your greatness in all of Katie's and in all the world. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're reminded in the Lord's Supper of God bringing eternal good out of incredible evil, aren't we? Reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And God is, in one sense, nourishing our souls through this together. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord, but also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I say this, I think just about every time we do this, a second sermon for us in picture form, a reminder that God will keep his promises to us, even in the most unlikely circumstances. We close our service with a benediction, a promise from God's word as we head out into this world for God to multiply our efforts for our good and his glory. This from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.